Welcome to the 301st episode of the Jamie Delaney Plant-Based Wellness Podcast. My name is Jamie Delaney, and I'm your host. I'm a plant-based cardiologist and endurance athlete living in Southwest Florida. Welcome, and thank you for listening. It is hot and getting a little bit humid down here in Florida, and my garden is suffering. Please send us some of your rain. Garden's hanging on, peppers and tomatoes are hanging on, eggplant, but I got to tell you, my cucumbers and zucchini do not like this hot weather that's really, really dry. Do have a little watermelon plants going, my herbs are doing good, papayas are still doing good, and the best thing about it is we're starting to see little black sapota flowers. If you've never seen a black sapota or had one, check it out because it is called the chocolate pudding fruit. It looks like the poison apple that was given to Sleeping Beauty that's it's it's green and it's um, kind of tomato shaped but when it gets ripe it turns army green and almost black and inside the the fruit is very soft and it tastes like chocolate pudding so exciting to um, hopefully get some of those on our tree eventually Blueberries are in season in Florida. Mangoes are starting to ripen. Of course, you can get papayas almost all year round uh, down here. So look to try some new fruits if you can get uh, your hands on, especially if you live in a tropical area, um, that you can try some native, native fruits. You know, get yourself out of the banana, apple, orange routine and, and try something more exciting. And, you know, watermelon doesn't have to be just for after dinner. It can be for breakfast as well, and as long as some of the other melons that are coming into season. So um, fruits are really good to hydrate. I like to do a uh, combination of uh, black cherries and watermelon, uh, make that into a smoothie for a hydrating drink after a long bike ride or if you've been working out in the yard. So that's always a, a good option. Um, the other thing that I've been doing a little bit more of lately is juicing some of my vegetables. I get a box from Misfit and sometimes I get a little ahead of myself and um, I get double carrots or double celery or have excess of kale stalks and I've just been juicing them and throwing, you know, and actually been looking, you know, get a couple beets and do that raw. So have a vegetable juice. Um, it's also a very hydrating thing to do after you've been doing some yard work or been out in the sun in the summertime. So Consider doing a vegetable juice to get some extra nutrients in. Leave the fruit out of it. You don't need that necessarily the extra calories as far as that goes, but um, especially if you're trying to lose weight. I don't. Um, I, I look at juices and smoothies as a way to get hydrated or get extra nutrients in, but I don't look at them as meal substitutions. I think given the opportunity, you should chew your foods as much as possible. But it, like again, if you're trying to get extra hydration or extra nutrients in, then you can look to those things. One easy thing to do um, in your weeknight cooking is to repurpose things. You know, you can always take soups and put them over um, polenta or soup over a baked potato. This week we did our poblano potato casserole, which is poblanos, mushrooms, potatoes that's kind of made into a casserole. We had that one night with white beans. And then the next night I decided to repurpose it. So I made some quinoa and I went ahead and stir fried some red onions and tomatoes and then did a pesto sauce because my basil's blooming good. And I did a pesto with navy beans 
and garlic and basil and nutritional yeast and put that over top of the potato poblano and now red uh, tomato and a red onion mixture. So completely different taste, completely different look, but I had most of the ingredients already made. So it was a, was a quick dinner. The poblano pepper dish is a pretty quick, uh, I'm sorry, poblano potato dish is a pretty quick dish. Uh, and then the next night to repurpose it was a, was a quick uh, dish as well. So think of how you can make your life a little bit more simple, especially during the week when you can repurpose something, you know, have a soup maybe once or twice, or, or you just repurpose for lunch is another, another option. So I'd like to send out well wishes to Jeff Galloway. Um, many of you have heard the podcast heard the podcast I did with Jeff Galloway on the uh, run-walk method that he has uh, coined over the years. Jeff has been a lifelong runner. He was in the Olympic trials. Um, he's 75 years young, and he suffered a heart attack and had five stents placed and a defibrillator placed. And I've not spoken with him directly, so I am inferring um, a lot of his medical history from what I've read. Um, But he did share online that he had um, some dizziness um, and felt very fatigued after a session um, on an elliptical machine. So he had unusual fatigue and some nausea and, and uh, went into the hospital and then subsequently had worse. And it sounds like he may have had um, ventricular tachycardia that ultimately led to five stents and the defibrillator placed. And he is on the mend, so I, I certainly wish him well. And, you know, the first thing that, you know, you think of is, geez, how could it happen to such a slim man? You know, he's never been overweight. He's a lifelong runner. He and his wife do a marathon um, a month almost. And gee, if it happened to him, why should I even bother? And, you know, so I wanted to kind of go through uh, some of um, um, these symptoms and perhaps what to look for and, um, you know, perhaps... I guess sometimes if you know why or you can have some some thought on, you know, how you might prevent it in you, it, it uh, would be great. Um, if you look at ventricular tachycardia or a heart, heart attack, it occurs in um, one, a heart attack occurs in one in 15,000 joggers, one in 50,000 marathon runners. So certainly when you tow the line of a marathon, it's not very common, but it's, it's um, possible. Um, males, tend to have more arrhythmias with their heart attack that lead, can lead to sudden death than females. Uh, 56% of females, um, when polled, don't even realize that heart attack is the number one killer of, uh, of women. People you know, think of cancer and are much more afraid of breast cancer, prostate cancer, colon cancer, lung cancer, but they don't realize that uh, you know, 56% I'm sorry, not 56%, but, it, but heart attack is, are, is the number one killer, uh, and certainly heart disease is the number one, one killer in this country. 25 to 30% of heart attacks have as their presenting symptom what we call sudden death, which is an arrhythmia that causes the heart to stop. 61.4% of sudden deaths are due to vascular disease. 
In the age group of 40 to 64, 20% of non-traumatic deaths are due to um, heart attacks and sudden death. 8.4% of those have no previous history of, of heart disease. So, you know, obviously the reported symptoms that Jeff Galloway had is fatigue and um, nausea are somewhat atypical. But, you know, my grandmother died of what she described as flu-like symptoms. Uh, she uh, talked about having a terrible indigestion, wish she could just burp. I can remember her saying that. I was 16 years old. It's still stuck in my head if she could only burp. Um, she felt very fatigued. We, we assumed that it was after preparing a big Christmas dinner for the family. But um, sometimes just overwhelming fatigue is a sign of of worsening heart disease and I think sometimes people um, you know put that off to something else oh I've just been doing something or I'm busy or I'm under stress but you know uh, fatigue beyond which you know a good night's sleep doesn't correct uh, should to make one take concern and certainly listen to your body you know so if you are training or doing things and you are very fatigued you need to listen and rest and see if things you know get better if they don't then obviously uh, you should seek medical attention. The typical heart attack that you know people you know think about is chest discomfort. Heart attack, chest pain is in the center of the chest or in the epigastric, in the pit of the stomach. You know, right up under the rib cage, feeling a terrible pressure, elephant sitting on your chest, or a feeling that you need to burp. Sometimes it radiates to your neck or your left arm. It can radiate to your right arm. It can radiate to your back. It does not occur with moving an extremity. So if you have pain in your arm, and typically heart pain kind of goes down to the elbow, but if you have pain in your arm and you move your arm and it hurts, it's not your heart. If you have pain in, your, in pain that's a gnawing discomfort and you move your arm and it doesn't hurt or it comes on with exertion and then goes away, that's a suggestion that it may be coming from your heart. All the nerves in your chest cavity kind of come the same place so it can be very confusing the same nerves that uh, go to your heart go to your esophagus and uh, also go to your back uh, and in your ribs so it can be it can be very confusing at times I think in in Jeff's case um, obviously he's not overweight I don't believe he ever smoked which is a risk factor I don't know if he had high blood pressure or not um, Diabetes is a risk factor for coronary artery disease and heart attacks. Uh, we talked about weight being sedentary, which obviously he's not. So the only, and, and then cholesterol being high um, is a risk factor, and inflammation is a risk factor. So we don't know, you know, uh, about hypertension, high cholesterol, or um, if. If he, you know, had an inflammatory condition, uh, sometimes people, you know, especially people that are of normal weight, uh, we looked, you know, it may have a normal cholesterol and it's more of an inflammatory component. When people talk about stress and a heart attack, you know, stress increases your sympathetic tone, increases heart attack and blood pressure. Different people handle, handle different stress differently. Um, just as, you know, blood pressure is not always um, entirely vascular or salt intake, it may be um, related to sympathetic tone. We've talked about on the previous podcast. So, you know, he, he looks like a pretty calm guy when I talk to him. He seems like a pretty calm guy. He likes what he's doing. He's not stressed over his work. 
so we think that his you know overall uh, sympathetic tone would be fairly low, but um, you just don't know. You you know different people hide and and handle stress differently. Um, genetics certainly plays a role. Um, doesn't have to. Uh, play a huge role. Uh, again, it depends on other things. It's never just genes alone. Uh, there's genes in conjunction with something else. He is 75 years old, so even a terrible family history, you know, he did pretty well. If everybody else in his family had heart attacks in his 40 and, you know, he got to 75 without much change other than exercise, then, you know, certainly we can say that exercise may have uh, prolonged or saved his life because we know that People that are physically fit survive heart attacks much greater uh, in a much greater percentage than people that aren't physically fit. So I'm sure that Jeff will come back. The fact that he had a defibrillator placed uh, and had some arrhythmias, um, you know, sometimes the arrhythmias again come because part of the heart's getting blood, part of the heart's not getting blood, and then there's this abnormal electrical conduction. The electrical system becomes very irritable. And then after the heart attack is over and blood flow is restored, then that irritation gradually subsides and people never have another arrhythmia. Sometimes there is scar tissue that has people uh, at risk for an arrhythmia. So if their heart function remains low and that scar causes a significant decrease in heart function, then that arrhythmia is more likely to occur in areas that, that are scarred versus not scarred. Sometimes people will refer to muscle as being stunned um, or hibernating. So when you have a chronic condition, chronic um, decrease in blood flow to a certain part of the heart because he was very fit, you know, he may have out-exercised some of his symptoms. So he may have had a long time with decreased blood flow to his heart that he just did pretty well. And when blood flow is restored, that hibernating or stunned myocardium or heart muscle might come back and his heart function may return entirely to normal. That happens quite often. Or there could be, you know, again, a lifelong scar. So, um, you know, again, we, we wish, him, wish him the best. Inflammation is, um, can be associated with a variety of different things. Like, you know, we know that gum disease and poor dentition increases uh, one's inflammation or inflammation anywhere in the body or just an inflammatory condition from one's diet or microbiome. So if people are eating a high oil diet, you know, Mediterranean diet is thought to be very good and it is uh, better than the standard American diet. And um, a lot of people, if you don't have significant risk, might get, get away a lot longer with the Mediterranean diet. But again, if, the, if you have a genetic predisposition to perhaps high cholesterol or inflammation and you add oil to that, it's going to increase the inflammation and may trigger, a, trigger an event. Other things that can cause inflammation, you know, um, viruses, vaccines, um, you know, we cause, and so I don't know if Jeff had uh, the vaccine. I'm not speculating that in any way, but, you know, things that cause an inflammatory reaction uh, can often uh, lead to a vascular inflammation. Autoimmune diseases are, are one of those things as well. So a lot of these things are hard to outrun. Uh, you can't outrun your genes. Um, you can't outrun um, inflammation for the most part. You can, out, you know, you can fix, you know, being sedentary is a risk factor for cardiovascular disease. He fixed that one. He's not overweight. He doesn't, I would, 
assume that he doesn't have uh, adult onset diabetes. I don't believe he has uh, juvenile diabetes just because of his athletic career. I, I don't think he ever smoked. Um, again, he could still have, have hypertension. And then, um, of course, this is a plant-based wellness podcast. We're going to talk about nutrition because, you know, even though people think that they're eating a good diet and they're not overweight, um, certain people can get away with more than other people. So uh, animal products are inflammatory, high saturated fat, um, again, high cholesterol put, you know, can put that as a, a risk factor. So even if you're exercising, you're not necessarily going to bring down your cholesterol enough to be protective. A lot of people that are runners, and we've talked about this before on the podcast, because they're thin, because they have a high metabolism, think that they can get away with eating, um, you know, uh, some food that's, that's not that healthy. But over time, you accumulate metabolic waste, no matter, you know, what size you are, or how much you're eating, it, it, it catch up, catches up. So, you know, ultimately, you can't, you cannot run a bad diet as much as I'd like to, you know, or wish, wish that you could. And, you know, I, I, I think that this is a good example for a lot of us that, um, one, we have to listen to our bodies. So if you feel symptoms of chest discomfort or overwhelming fatigue, um, dizziness, lightheadedness, you need to listen to your body. I also think that people need to train smarter as they get older. I am a huge believer in um, heart rate straps uh, to look at heart rate. You can get a heart rate on your wrist, but um, not necessarily um, the heart rate on the wrist is not necessarily as accurate and it doesn't monitor uh, beat to beat, second to second, they usually you know go every minute or so. So you might miss a jump in heart rate. Certainly, if you were running and you you know you got suddenly much more shorter breath than you normally do, then that would be something to uh, have evaluated. Certainly, stop and see what your heart rate is. Um, I, I think that it's important to determine what you eat. If you eat and then go run, you have blood flow going to your gut as well as to your leg muscles, so it puts more strain on your heart, so you're better off doing your morning exercise on an empty stomach or with just some water. Um, certainly, if you're an evening or afternoon exerciser, if you have an uh, oil in, the, in your diet in the way of olive oil, soybean oil, canola oil, cottonseed oil, peanut oil, chicken fish, um, anything with saturated fat, we know it causes blood vessel uh, vasoconstriction and can lead to arrhythmias. So if you already have a problem and then you constrict more, it can be a, an issue for you. On the other hand, if you have known coronary artery disease, a couple bites of uh, handfuls of uh, spinach or a beet and then wait 15 or 20 minutes before you go out the door could be helpful. Uh, we know that dilates the arteries uh, and is, it is more protective. People should exercise to heart rate. I have seen uh, a lot of heart rates that are elevated more than they should be for somebody's age. Again, on a wrist watch heart rate versus a chest strap heart rate. So I think it's really important to correlate with the chest strap if you're seeing heart rates that are above what would be a heart rate for your age. Uh, typically a maximum heart rate, 220 minus your age 
is would be a maximum heart rate attainable at full exertion over a period of time. Most people should exercise, you know, even Kenyan runners don't exercise at a full tilt. 80% of running should be done at low heart rates. 20% can be done at higher if you're okay and cleared by your doctor. So if you're starting to take off and, you know, start a new exercise program, I, you know, I think that it's fabulous. I think by no means should people say, oh, no, I'm going to do it. If it happened to Jeff, it could happen to me, so I'm not going to do it. I think that's the wrong, wrong approach. But I do think you need to be smart. I do think people need to not put their head in the sand and say, oh, I can eat what I want because I'm a runner and I'm thin. Um, that's obviously not the case for a, a lot of people. Um, having had an event, Jeff's going to go back to running. I think that's the best thing that you can do is to, again, maintain physical fitness. We know that probably saved his life, that not being tremendously overweight or overweight at all. But I think we all have ways that we can improve our, our, um, our overall health. And I hope that Jeff will look to a plant-based diet. I know he's not plant-based, um, but I would hope that he would look to a plant-based, no oil, no processed oil diet in the future and uh, get, you know, not just attribute it to hereditary or being 75. So again, I wish you well, Jeff, and hope you, hope you do well. Um, just as he has helped me with his running, if he reaches out, I'd love to help him with his plant-based nutrition. So I think, you know, if you're starting a running program, it's all the better to um, make sure you're doing, you know, your nutrition is, is good. I was running uh, this week and ran into a neighbor, um, and we were talking about, I started running a little bit with Sophie. She's nine months old, so um, Sophie is now easy running, easy running, jogging two to three miles uh, every day for the most part. And, uh, you know, we're, she's learning to uh, walk on the lead as well as run with me uh, and, you know, watch me and heal and all those, all those good things when we're, when we're running. And I stopped to talk to a neighbor who is a dog trainer and, um, you know, he mentioned to me in our conversation that he was diagnosed with a condition called hemochromatosis uh, which is a um, abnormal absorption of iron leading to a very high red blood cell count and very high hemoglobin that can cause strokes and um, blood clotting if you don't get regular phlebotomies. One way to improve that condition, it's usually a genetic condition, it can be, um, but one way to, and, and basically it, it gets people when they get older, say in their 40s and 50s, it starts uh, uh, or make it it usually gets worse in the 50s and 60s, but it can be very well handled with phlebotomy and guess what? Plant-based nutrition because if you eat iron from plants, and remember all iron does come from the ground, you don't need it to come through the blood of an animal to get iron, but iron coming from plants, grains and greens and beans need a protein to absorb, absorb it, so you're only going to absorb what you need, not excessive amounts. If you eat blood iron from animals, it comes in without a binder, and so you can absorb an excessive amount, and it can be uh, stored in your brain, your liver, and your kidneys. The sad part about that is when I mentioned that to him, he's like, oh, you know, give up meat, you know, give up. And it's like, to me, it's, it's get health. Um, you know, so I, I think that you need to look up what you give up versus what you get. And that is, uh, you know, to me, that would be a no brainer. You mean that I wouldn't absorb as much iron if I eliminated eating, uh, the blood from an animal, 
um, okay, done, you know, we'll go on. But, you know, everybody's entitled to make their own decisions. And, you know, I can inform people and they get to make their own, their own choices. I also saw an interesting article looking at the cost effectiveness, I'm sorry, the cost effectiveness um, an analysis looking at added sugar labeling and the obesity associated with increased cancer rates. You heard me right. If you're overweight, your risk factor for cancer increases. If you're a diabetic, you're in, your risk for cancer increases. So they looked at if sugar is labeled, how much sugar is labeled, and you reduce the amount of sugar, if you label it, can you decrease cancer rates by decreasing obesity? And they, using a mathematical model, postulated that there would be a reduction of 30,000 new cases or 17,100 deaths, um, and it would save about $16 million dollars. It's pretty good by just putting a label on what is um, high in sugar. So what actually is high in sugar and what does that mean? How much sugar is okay? Uh, the average American um, actually gets 14% of their calories from added sugar every day. And that's about 300 calories per day in sugar. The guidelines is that you should have less than 10% of your calories from simple sugar. What struck me right away was 10%, 10% of, you know, if we average 2,000 calories would be 200 calories a day. They estimated that 3,000 new cancer cases came from just excessive sugaring, the sugar that people get from drinks. The average daily sugar consumption being 73 grams in this study, 52.6 were thought to be coming from food, uh, packaged food and beverages. So the majority of simple sugars that we eat are not, you know, the, the sugar that you tables teaspoon out of the sugar bowl on the table. It comes from the food it's in what's in processed food. So if something's breaded, it typically has high fructose glucose, in, uh, high fructose corn syrup in it. Uh, obviously, sugary energy drinks um, have, you know, added sugar. Um, kids' drinks sometimes have added sugar in them. Soda pops have, you know, Gatorade. Um, different energy sports drinks have added sugar in them. But it, it hit me a couple different ways. One, it hit me that... Well, one, um, it's not something that oncologists talk about. They don't tell, they actually, you know, eat all the calories you want. Uh, a lot of times at doctor's offices and screenings, they have cookie jars or candy jars. Um, looking at 300 calories versus 200 calories is not a whole lot different. Um, somewhat scary. Um, that, you know, we're, we're looking uh, at, at such small numbers. But it's, it's like salt. Um, when we, you know, you think about sugar, people say, well, I don't add any salt to my food or I don't add any sugar to my food. Um, people will say, I just have honey 
or I have maple syrup, um, that's a simple sugar. Or they'll, you know, you know, even when we when we talk about juices, um, the high fructose, you know, the, the the fructose that mainly comes from juices without the, the the pulp and the fiber of the whole fruit, you absorb it more more readily. But again, most people, were, you know, when they when we're talking about sugar, it's in things. It's in the it's in the beverage. It's in the processed food. Just like with salt, it's in the processed food. It's not necessarily added at the table. And so people get a false sense of security by saying, "I don't eat that much sugar. Or I don't eat that much salt," because they don't realize just how much is added. So I would encourage you to look at labels and see just what, you know, just where sugar is added, just where salt is added to things. Um, and it, it took me down a little bit of a rabbit hole um, because I, I, I started wondering, you know, because breading uh, has sugar in it uh, a lot of times, you know, if you get, or even if you just get bread, you know, bread has added sugar. Um, whole wheat bread that people think is more healthy tends to have more sugar or some sort of honey or sweetener added to it because the whole wheat germ is a little bit bitter. So if there's some of that in the bread, then it's a little bit more bitter. So people add sugar to the bread to add a sweetness. Um, so it's in a lot of places. But I, I thought, what about packaged food? And then I thought, well, what about, you know, some of the, uh, you know, vegan products? And I'm not picking on Gardein. I think it's one of the healthier uh, processed vegan transition foods, but um, it's certainly processed and it certainly should only be a transition food if that, but they have a breakfast sausage. And I, so I pulled it up and they have 70 calories from one little sausage, 3.5 grams of fat. There was 270 milligrams of salt in one, one patty. Um, and I know people wouldn't eat one patty. They would probably eat say two or three patties, right? There was only one, there was less than a gram of added sugar, so I thought that was pretty good, and it came from beet or cane sugar, so it wasn't high fructose corn syrup, which would typically be genetically modified. Well, then I thought about, well, okay, let's compare it. Let's compare it. I used to be on the treadmill in the morning and uh, before I ran outside when I first started running, and I would see this Jimmy Dean sausage commercial, this Jimmy Dean breakfast sausage or breakfast thing commercial. So I thought, well, let me look at Jimmy Dean sausage. So one Jimmy Dean sausage patty is 140 calories, so twice the calories. 27 grams of fat versus 3.5 grams of fat. Nine of those are saturated. No fiber. One gram of sugar. 490 milligrams of sodium. So 490 milligrams of sodium for one patty. So you know people eat three or four of those, plus something else. People just don't eat sausage patties, right, for breakfast. So you, can, so you can see the added salt and the added fat that can come in so quickly. So just one sausage patty. Let's make it worse. How about a McGriddle? Okay, so that is the uh, McDonald's sandwich with uh, pancake, egg, and sausage. 430 calories, 21 grams of fat. 15 grams of sugar, and a whopping 1,230 milligrams of sodium. That could happen first thing in the morning to people. Vasoconstriction, high blood pressure, 
diabetes, increased cancer risk. 15 grams of sugar. 15 grams times 4, it would be the number of calories. So, um, you know, how things add up when you're not really looking. And it, it, it can be astonishing. On the other hand, uh, a few weeks ago, I talked about uh, coffee consumption and decreasing risk of heart failure. Uh, there was also a recent study in the frontiers of neuroscience looking at coffee consumption and brain function. So this looked at thinking skills and a decreased risk of Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. And this was a study done out of the Kremble Research Institute in Toronto. And so they wanted to try to figure out what in coffee is beneficial when it comes to brain function. And so they looked at um, caffeinated versus decaf, and that didn't seem to make a difference. But then they looked at the roasting, so um, dark roasted versus light roasted. And what they noted was the beneficial chemicals released during roasting uh, were these phenylindanes. And the more that a coffee was roasted, the more of these phenylindanes that were released. And it's associated with the bitterness of the coffee. Um, so again, uh, it's, it was thought that these particular chemicals decrease the formation of particular proteins um, like amyloid bodies and um, tau-type proteins that uh, ultimately cause problems. I'm getting a lot of help from Sophie and Gretchen tonight. I do apologize, but I can only edit so much out and get this finished. <laughs> so anyway, it's another good reason to drink some coffee. Uh, helps your heart, helps your brain. Gets you going in the morning, too. There was another study that, that showed that there actually are um, you know, it does kind of kickstart you in the morning. So go ahead and uh, have that cup of coffee. But you can also, you know, intermix it with some green tea because we also know that there's cancer benefits from, from green tea uh, and, and different um, anti-inflammatory effects from different, different teas. So, so mix it up a little bit. Just don't, you know, putting creamer or all those kind of uh, crazy drink, you know, sweeteners in there, you're going to mess it up. So you got to drink your coffee black or have some, some, some plain soy milk in it. So I think, you know, there's a lot of things we can do to protect ourselves. Certainly exercise is going to decrease our risk of dying from a heart attack, um, improve our overall outcome, decrease the chance of a heart attack. Um, everything is multifactorial. There are, you know, there's more than one thing that will take you down. It's not just an isolated gene or an isolated um, um, risk factor that's, that's going to ultimately uh cause a problem. Um, we're all, we all are going to die at, at some point, but I think that there's a lot we can do to delay that or certainly live better while we're living. And obviously, a uh, plant-based diet is one of them, making sure you're getting your five to six cups of greens in a day, um, decreasing your processed oil intake as much as you possibly can, making sure that your lipid levels are as good as you possibly can get them, while eating a whole food plant-based diet, decreasing your processed food intake will decrease your sodium intake. 
thinking before you just eat for um, simple, um, this tastes good. So, you know, getting rid of the coffee creamer or the sugar in your drinks, look for added sources of these things. So if you're pick up a package of bread and uh, you see a laundry list of ingredients, that's not for you. Um, like somebody came in today and, you know, said, uh, I was told carbs are bad. And it's like, what's carbs? And they said, she, they, the doctor didn't say what carbs were. Um, so certainly, you know, carbohydrates in the form of a simple white sugar versus carbohydrates in the form of a potato or an eggplant are, are two different things. Uh, and, and should not be lumped together. Um, eat a colorful plate. Don't eat too much. Do exercise. And, uh, you know, again, uh, avoid, avoid uh, processed junk foods that really add up over time and cause the accumulation of metabolic waste. So I uh, hope that you won't be scared away from going out and doing a Galloway walk-run program. I know he wouldn't want you to be afraid of going back out and running. Um, do consider doing heart rate training if you have some interest in that. Uh, I would uh, certainly love to help um, uh, people to run with a heart rate monitor and learn what to, uh, you know, to read their body and to, to train at any age for whatever race they want to train. So train smart, eat smart, live smart, but don't forget to live because that's the most important thing. Um, living in a bubble is nothing, you know, it's not good for anyone. So go out and um, get fresh air and enjoy. Until next week, thank you for listening. Folders in your cup.